0: Tuesday, 2006, October 17th. Today is lecture 19, Orbits, which will begin in just a moment. Yesterday we introduced the law of gravity. We talked about how it is a mutual force proportional to the product of the masses and inversely proportional to the square of the distance between the two objects. We went through a rather mathematical demonstration of how the fall of an apple and the fall of the moon are really caused by the influence of the same gravitational force force law. Of course, the apple being a much smaller mass than the moon feels a different force and therefore accelerates in a slightly different way because the moon is not only bigger, but it's further away. And we showed how that the moon's orbit is not some sort of mysterious path. It is simply falling around the earth. It's moving to the side just enough to make up for the amount that it falls each time in the Earth's gravity. And when I put all those things together, I get an orbit. I want to pick up that theme today and talk about the nature of orbits. What does Newton tell us about orbits that we learn more than we learned from Kepler? We're going to take Kepler's laws and we're going to generalize them. So today's key ideas are as follows. What Newton did was not simply explain Kepler's laws, he generalized them to apply to any two bodies orbiting each other, not just planets orbiting the Sun. And works turned the original three laws of Kepler into three generalized laws. The first of which is that orbits are conic sections with the center of mass of the two bodies at one focus. We'll see what that means here in just a second. The second law is actually a statement of something called angular momentum conservation. And we'll explain what that's all about here in just a minute. And finally, the third law was to show that the period squared is, in fact, proportional to the semi-major axis cubed, but there's an additional factor in play, and that turns out to be the sum of the masses of the two bodies. This third law is going to be extremely powerful for us. It allows us to measure masses by measuring orbital periods and orbital sizes, and we'll see how that works today. Finally, what Newton, if all Newton did was explain Kepler's laws, he wouldn't have really gotten very far because all he was doing was giving a physical explanation for empirical laws. But what really made Newtonian gravity a powerful idea and why it advanced so much so quickly is because it had very strong predictive power. It brought, not only explained old phenomena; it explained and predicted new phenomena that no one even imagined. And we're going to see two examples of that. A prediction of the return of Halley's Comet which is important because comets were thought to be random events to predict the return of a comet was unprecedented in history. And the discovery of the planet Neptune was done by seeing the the gravitational influence of Neptune upon the planet Uranus and actually allowed one to predict that a major member of the solar system was out there and unseen and where to point the telescope. And sure enough, there it was swimming in the scope. Let's review just for a second. Kepler's three laws of planetary motion were derived by Johannes Kepler using the data from Tycho Brahe, mostly on Mars, but then applied to the rest of Brahe's planetary data. and He was able to to state these laws as follows. The first was that orbits are ellipses with the Sun at one focus. So if I look at the orbit of Mars, even the orbit of the Earth, Venus, Mercury, Jupiter, and Saturn, They don't orbit circles around some empty point in space, they orbit on ellipses with the Sun located at one of the foci of the ellipse, the two points that define the ellipse. The second law was a statement about the speed of a planet. The line running from the Sun to the planet sweeps out an equal area in equal times. This explains why planets appear to move faster at perihelion when they're closer to the Sun and slower when they're at aphelion, far from the Sun. And it explains the change in speed in the right proportions. Sort of the sweeping out of a triangle as we saw last time. And finally, the third law, or the so-called harmonic law, found a numerical relationship between this period of an orbit, how long it takes to complete one circuit around the sun, and the size of the orbit, in this case parameterized as the semi-major axis of the ellipse. And it states that the period squared is equal to the semi-major axis cubed. So if I have the Earth, one squared is equal to one cubed. If I had a satellite sitting out at where would I have to put it, four astronomical units, A of four, four cubed is 64, square root of 64 is eight. That satellite will have an eight-year period. If I express the period in years and A in astronomical units. But this only worked for the planets going around the sun. It did not work for the moon going around the earth, apparently. It didn't seem to work, at least apparently, for the Galilean satellites orbiting around Jupiter. And these are empirical laws. He simply found them by playing with different mathematical relationships until he got everything to agree with the data. So Kepler was kind of halfway between the old way of just preserving appearances, but Kepler also deeply believed that there were physical explanations for why these laws had to be this way. The problem Kepler had, of course, is that he had incorrect notions of what forces were. He thought of something pushing the planets around the sky, not the idea of a response of an object to a central force. That insight had to wait until Isaac Newton, as we saw in the last couple of lectures. What Newton did was to start from general principles, the three laws of motion and his law of gravitation, and show that Kepler's laws can be derived from these first principles. He didn't have to appeal to any data. He didn't have to preserve any appearances. He simply said, look, I've got three laws of motion. Object in motion tend to remain in motion unless acted upon by an outside force. That force is proportional to mass times acceleration, and that third law that forces come in equal and opposite pairs. Using those three rules and then specifying what the force involved was, this force of gravitation. The force of gravitation between any two bodies is a constant g times the mass of the bodies divided by the distance between their center squared. Using that and this fancy new mathematics he worked out called the integral and differential calculus, he actually derived all three of Kepler's laws. But he didn't stop there. He showed that Kepler's laws not only could be explained, but they could be generalized. That they didn't have to simply apply to planets going around the sun, but they could apply to any two bodies moving under the influence of their mutual gravitation. Which means he could explain why the orbit of the moon around the earth was the way it was. He could explain the orbits of the Galilean satellites around Jupiter. Furthermore when people eventually discover two stars of nearly the same mass or slightly different masses orbiting each other, we use a ver- this generalization of Kepler's laws to explain their orbits. And in fact, we can carry this out beyond simply the solar system. We can carry it out into the galaxy. We could talk about how galaxies move with respect to each other in their mutual gravity and empty space. So it's a very, very powerful generalization of Kepler's effort which Kepler was really only trying to describe why the planets were moving the way they were. And Newton showed what Kepler had really done was simply scratch the surface at the universal law of gravitation. Let's look at what this generalization is. What we're going to do is we're going to take Kepler's three laws and we're going to now take and restate them as Newton would restate them. Kepler's first law was the the orbits of a planet are an ellipse with the sun at one focus. What Newton showed was that the shape of an orbit is a conic section, as I've underlined there, with the center of mass at one focus. We've got two things going on here. The first of these is the shape of the orbit. Conic sections are curves that are found by taking a cone in three dimensions and slicing it with a plane in various orientations. And if you do that, this was actually shown by a man named Apollonius of Perga, that you can get circles, ellipses, parabolas, and hyperbolas. These shapes are all known to be families of different curves. The circle is found by cutting the, plane, the cone in one way. An ellipse, you cut it at an oblique angle. Parabolas and hyperbolas are different cuts that give you open-ended curve. We haven't seen those before, but we've certainly seen circles and ellipses. The second piece is that the sun or the primary body is not at the one focus of the ellipse, but the center of mass of the system. This led to a very interesting conclusion. The Earth does not orbit the Sun. The Earth and Sun orbit around each other around a common center of mass. Furthermore, the Earth and Moon. The Moon does not orbit around the center of the Earth. The Moon orbits around the center of mass of the Earth-Moon system, and the Earth orbits around that same center but on a smaller orbit. In fact, the center of mass of the the Earth-Moon system is actually about now, approximately below our feet, because the moon is getting close to wa- uh, waning crescent. And in fact, it's a few hundred kilometers, a th- thousand or so kilometers below our feet. We'll see what that means here in just a second. These are the conic sections. If I take a cone, I've got the red cone here drawn, and I cut it with different planes. If I cut a plane perfectly perpendicular to the main axis of the cone, I look at that shape, it's going to give me a circle. If instead I cut the plane at a slightly oblique angle from perpendicular, but not so oblique that I equal the angle of the side of the cone, and I look at the shape that's cut out, I will see an ellipse. As I tilt tilt that plane further from perpendicular, I get a perfect circle. As I tilt the plane further and further and further, I get a larger and larger, longer, thin ellipse. So all the family of ellipses from circles, which is a special case of the major and minor axis being the same size, up through all the range of eccentricities is simply changing the angle that this plane cuts the cone. That's it, they're all related as a family of curves. However, at some point, that plane is going to be at an angle in which the angle equals the angle of the side of one of these, of of the cone. So the plane is now parallel to one side of the cone. At that case, the curve that's sliced out will never close upon itself. It will be an open curve, and this curve has a very special shape because it's exactly parallel to one side. It's called a parabola. Just in the same way that there's one circle here, it's the plane that's cut parallel to the base, or if you will, perpendicular to the cone (laughs) axis. And then I can simply start turning the plane at a much, much steeper angle until I finally reach the point where the plane is exactly parallel to the main cone axis, and I get a whole family of eventually open curves. These curves are called the hyperbole. So a circle is a, is a special case of an ellipse. A parabola is a special case of a hyperbola. The curves on top are closed curves. They all form a single loop around each other and they close whereas the parabola and the hyperbola are open curves. They never close upon themselves. They come in from infinity, zip around, and go out to infinity. Yes, ma'am? Parabola. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Parabola is a special case of a hyperbola. Okay. Where in the same way that a circle is a special case of an ellipse. Yeah. So you can see they're related. There's two there's a family of closed curves with one special case and a family of open curves with one special case. But they're all formed simply by cutting a cone with a plane. And they're all related mathematically. So the conic sections, again, or just to reiterate, come in two families. The closed curves, the general curve of which is called an ellipse, and the circle is the special case of an ellipse with an eccentricity of zero because it's not eccentric. It's a circle. Now, if you make an orbit... In the shape of an ellipse or circle, we say that these orbits are bound to the parent object. In the sense that the object, a little say we're looking at a little tiny mass, like an astronaut orbiting the earth. If the astronaut is on either an elliptical or a circular orbit, then that astronaut will be bound to the earth. He will simply orbit perpetually in that circle if he takes no further action, applies no forces to change his orbit. He would just simply orbit perpetually. Just like if an astronaut, for example, lets go of a of a, of a of a hammer in high orbit, if there are no drag forces acting, it will simply stay in that orbit bound to the earth forever, like the planets are effectively bound to the sun. But open curves are a little different, they're a little less intuitive. Hyperbolas are the most general form of the open curve, the parabola is just a special case of a hyperbola, it happens to have a very specific geometry to it, it's not important for us to go into the distinction here. In this case, if an object is following a parabolic or a hyperbolic orbit around another massive object, that orbit's going to be unbound. The objects actually escape from the body. So for example, you might imagine a rock coming in from interstellar space, moving so fast it's not able to be bound to the sun. Coming in a hyperbolic orbit, it will pass by the sun quickly and then leave and never come back. Or I can imagine giving an object enough speed that it breaks open the ellipse, as we'll see in just a second. So we don't just simply have closed orbits, which is what we experience in the planetary system. There's also the set of open orbits described by these open curves. And what Newton was able to show was that when took the three laws of motion and the law of gravity and said, what are the possible trajectories of objects moving in the presence of a central force? The answer was a conic section with the center of mass located at one of the foci. Now, this gives us actually a way of relating how, do, how does an object know what kind of orbit it should be in? How does it know it should be in an ellipse or a circle and not the other way around? And the answer turns out to be its orbital speed or its orbital velocity. For example, we can t- ask, if, I've got a, if I wanted to put an object in orbit around the Earth at a given height or a given distance from the center of the Earth, how fast would it have to be going to be in an exactly circular orbit? Newton could answer that question. He said, well, it has to be what we call the circular speed. The circular speed is simply the square root of g, the gravitational constant, still bits of donut here on the screen from the other day, times the mass of the Earth divided by the radius of the orbit. And the orbit is measured from the center of the Earth. So if I have exactly this speed, I'll be in a circular orbit. If I have more or less than this speed, I can't be in a circular orbit at that distance, around that mass, and I must be in an elliptical orbit. The curve must open up or close down a little bit. We'll show a picture here in just a second. So if the speed is slower than the circular speed, the orbit's gonna be an ellipse that's smaller than the circle. The way to think about it is the circular speed is exactly the speed it needs, so as it moves sideways on its orbit, it's gonna fall towards the Earth a bit. It exactly compensates for the amount of fall, and it always stays at exactly the same distance from the planet. A line drawn out always staying the same distance from a central object is a circle. But if it's moving too slow, that means it falls further than it moves to the the one side. And so the object will move, but it will fall a little bit past where the circular path would be. And so it kind of plunges around the Earth. So it's not moving fast enough to stay on the circle. It's going to break inside the circle. And so I get an ellipse smaller than the circle. Similarly, if my speed is a little bit bigger than the circular speed, then I move to the side more then I have to fall back down to stay on the circle. So I miss the circle. I I have a flatter trajectory at that point. And so I fall out and around, but I'm still closed because I'm not that much bigger than the circular speed. And so I end up with an ellipse that is larger than the circle. So I can adjust my orbit. If I drop into a circular orbit, if I slow down a little bit, I'll fall more towards the Earth and therefore I'll get an ellipse that's smaller. But if I move a little faster, I get a little flatter trajectory because I got more motion to be deflected by gravity and so I'll fall in a much bigger ellipse around there. Of course, I can keep speeding up and the ellipse will start getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually, however, I'll reach a speed where the ellipse suddenly breaks open. And when that ellipse breaks open, I've achieved escape velocity. This is the minimum speed an object has to have to have a parabolic starting from that distance from a mass body. And notice it isn't all that bigger than the circular velocity. The circular velocity was square root of gm over r. Oops. The escape velocity is the square root of 2 gm over r. It's only the square root of 2 bigger, which is only about 41%. So if I go from circular speed and I get 45% greater speed, that will exceed the escape velocity... And I'll break off onto one of these open families of orbits. If I have exactly the escape speed, my orbit exactly the escape speed, my orbit will be a parabola. If I exceed the escape speed, my orbit will be one of the family of hyperbolas. So that's how we know what a planet gets into what kind of orbit, based on its speed at a given distance. Now, to give you some idea of what these numbers are like If I was to take an object like a rock or something and throw it towards the east at 7.9 kilometers per second or 28,400 kilometers an hour, it would actually go into a circular orbit at the radius of the Earth. Of course, mountains and stuff would get in the way, but if the Earth was a perfectly smooth billiard ball, we could have one of those classic Bugs Bunny situations where something gets fired off to the side and comes around and smacks uh, Daffy upside the head later on as it orbits around. That would be the circular speed. But if I increase the speed just a little bit, 40%, from 7.9 kilometers a second to 11.2 kilometers a second, and I throw it straight up, then it will actually break free from the Earth's gravity and go on to a parabolic trajectory. It'll still be probably stuck on the Sun, but it will break free from the Earth's gravity. I have to be moving at 40,300 kilometers per hour to achieve escape speed from the surface of the Earth. So this is how we can compute this for any given combination of mass and radius. I can always tell you what is the speed you have to have to be in a circular orbit at that distance from the massive parent body. This m refers to the mass of the object you're orbiting. And then I can ask, well, how fast would I have to go to break free of the gravity of that object? And it's simply 2 gm over r square root. So here again, let's put these in pictures. If you're moving at exactly the circular speed for your distance from a massive object, and I've made the little orange object here just visible, you will orbit on a circular orbit. If I make that speed a little bit slower, it has a more curved trajectory. It falls more towards the Earth. It follows Kepler's second law, or at least the generalization of it, and so it looks like it's falling towards the Earth, but then it falls around and misses the Earth and comes back up to the orbit position. If I'm moving just a little faster at that position, remember my starting point here is the mass, and this is my radius r, this point here. If I'm moving faster than the circular speed, I have a flatter trajectory, and so I break outside the circle, and I go out until finally I turn back around. Now, of course, PowerPoint's imperfect, and it shows it's stopping there. It's really a smooth motion. I can't seem to make it not do that. If I have exactly the escape speed... I only make one pass. I'm on the parabolic orbit, and if I now exceed the escape speed, I get on an even flatter trajectory. Notice how as I go from a circle to the green curve, faster than a circle into an ellipse, to the white curve, the escape orbit, to the yellow curve, a randomly chosen hyperbola, as I go faster and faster, notice how the trajectory at this point gets flatter and flatter and flatter. And eventually a very fast hyperbola would have an almost per- almost perfectly flat trajectory if it had infinite speed. Of course, you can't have infinite speed, but that gives you the illustration of how these things work. So the family of closed orbits is the ellipse, with the circle as the exact special case of one very particular velocity. It's bounded on the on above, the largest ellipse will be just slower than the escape speed, and the smallest ellipses will be growing down from just under the circular speed. And then above the escape speed, you have essentially an infinite family of orbits called the hyperbole and exactly at the escape speed you have the parabola. So you can see how when they said these were a special case of the family of curves, it's because they have a very specific velocity associated with them at the starting point here at a distance r from the central mass m. The second piece is a little bit less intuitive until you think about it for a little bit. The two objects orbit around their common center of mass. What the center of mass is, it's the balance point between the two masses. I can draw a mass on a stick, for example, this meter stick here has got a couple of clamps acting as weights, and there's a balance point in between which we call the center of mass. It's where the force of gravity pulling down on the left is exactly equal, in this case, to the force of gravity pulling down on the right. I can talk about the distance of each mass from that balance point. The semi-major axis is the sum of these two in the orbit, a1 plus a2, where a1 is the distance of the big mass from the fulcrum and a2 is the distance of the small mass from the fulcrum. The relative positions, the ratio of the size of the distance of the small object from the fulcrum compared to the distance of the big object, a2 over a1, turns out to be just the ratio of the masses, m1 over m2. To illustrate this, I've got a couple of masses here. I've got a big warthog and a small warthog. My wife is also an astronomy professor and she has an absolutely amazing collection of stuffed warthogs in her office. In fact, she has something of reputation among students at this university for being the warthog lady. I still married her anyway. All right, clamp the big warthog there, and then clamp down the micro pumba here. I picked these from the collection by having clampable tails. Now, if I put the scale here in the middle of the meter stick, it's pretty clear that the middle point, the geometric middle point, is not the balance point for these. Where's the balance point going to be? Well, pretty clearly it's going to be closer to the big one than to the small one. And it should be in the ratio of their masses, but I don't know the ratio of their masses. So we're just going to grab hold here. And that tells me I'm going to point just a little bit too close to this guy, because this one's now a little far away, because that one's still got an influence. That's too close. Totally crazy. Got to go the other way. Ah, now I'm too far. We're zeroing in. And it's pretty close to there. Now, I did not dial this in before class. So, I can now tell you what the approximate ratio of the sizes of these two characters are relative to each other. This one is about 28 centimeters from one end. The other one is the 100 minus 28 or 72. So it's roughly in the proportion of 72 to 28. I won't try to do that one in my head. Okay, I'm cheating a bit. I'm not including the mass of the clamp and the mass of the wood, but if I could make those go away or compensate for them, I could tell you the relative masses of these two objects without ever once pulling out a scale. Couldn't tell you their absolute scale, that's a little harder. Well, now I want to set them in motion. Obviously, the most natural way for them to move is to swing about their common center of mass. So this is using a balance point here. I have an arithmetic that tells you how the ratio of the distances from the center of mass goes like the ratio of the masses. You notice that the bigger warthog is moving on a smaller circle and therefore moving at a slower orbital speed, whereas Pumba there is the small mass one, is way out on the lever arm and is swinging around like crazy there and getting dizzy. But they stay exactly on a line between each other through the center of mass, orbiting around that mutual center of mass. So even though I've got a sort of silly example with stuffed warthogs and meter sticks, The arithmetic, if I replace warthogs by planets and meter stick by force of mutual gravity working through their center of mass, the arithmetic is identical. Let's give you an example of how this works in the Earth-Sun system. The Sun has a mass of about 2 times 10 to the 30 kilograms, and as we saw yesterday, the Earth has a mass of about 6 times 10 to the 24 kilograms. In round numbers, the Earth is almost about a million times less massive than the Sun, but it's not quite that. It's got a factor of 3 in there. The distance of the Earth to the Sun is one astronomical unit, about 150 million kilometers. The ratio of the distance of the Sun from the common Earth-Sun center of mass to the ratio of the distance of the Earth from the common Earth-Sun center of mass is the ratio of the mass of the Earth to the mass of the Sun, or about 3 times 10 to the minus 6. The Earth is a whole lot smaller than the Sun, but it's not infinite. It's not small. It's not zero that tells us that the Sun is 450 kilometers from the center of mass of the Earth-Sun system. So if you looked and said the Earth goes around the Sun, no it doesn't, it actually goes around a point 450 kilometers from the center of the Sun. And that's only talking about the Earth-Sun system. Now that turns out 450 kilometers is deep in the interior of the Sun because the Sun's radius is 700,000 kilometers. But still, the Earth is falling around the Sun Earth-Sun center of mass, and the Sun is also moving in reflex around the Earth-Sun center of mass on exactly the same side. If you could draw a movie relative to the center of mass, like the big warthog and pumbaa on the stick there, you would see exactly the two planets moving around their common center of mass. It's not as sensible for the Sun, but when you talk about a big planet like Jupiter, which is substantially bigger, 318 times the mass of the Earth, That actually defines the center of mass for the whole solar system. And so when you add all the planets together, they're moving around the common center of mass of the whole multi-planet plus sun system of the entire solar system. And that center of mass happens to be dominated by the sun and Jupiter because they contain about 99.5% of all the mass in the solar system. They're They're the two 800 pound gorillas. Here's a little movie to demonstrate this. This is a calculational movie of a pair of stars, a binary star, which have a mass ratio of 3.6 and they're on circular orbits. The green point is the center of mass. And you notice the center of mass doesn't move. That's the stationary point. That's the fixed point of motion is the center of mass. You can see how the big star is moving around very slowly. The little star is zipping around there. The ratio of the orbit sizes is 3.6 to 1 in ratio of their masses, but they stay on a line. A line drawn between their centers always passes through the center of mass. And they follow very closely Kepler's laws. Very nice. It's a very simple simplification. I don't have to limit myself to talking about the sun. I could talk about any pairs of objects. An astronaut orbiting the Earth, the moons of Jupiter orbiting Jupiter, or two stars orbiting each other. Now, what about the second law? The second law is the one that stated, according to Kepler, that a line going from the sun to the planet sweeps out equal areas in equal times. That means the planet moves fastest when it's closest to the sun at perihelion and slowest when it's out at aphelion. But that was a geometric statement. What does that mean physically? Why does it do that? Why does it sweep out equal areas in equal times? Why not equal distances in equal times along the arc? Why is it equal areas? Well, the answer turns out to be, according to Newton, that orbits conserve something called angular momentum. Angular momentum is often called L. It's equal to the product of the mass times the velocity times the radius of the size of the orbit. So you can imagine an, o- an object in an orbit. And it's in a circular orbit, and it's swinging around with a certain orbital speed, the circular speed. It's got a certain mass. It has a certain momentum. Momentum is basically mass times velocity. How much stuff is moving how fast. Angular momentum says how much stuff is moving how fast at what distance from the center of the motion. So m is the mass, v is the velocity, and r is from distance from the center of mass. At a constant mass, the mass of the earth does not change appreciably. If I increase the distance it is from the central center of mass, this l has got to be a constant number, m is not changing. So if r gets bigger, v has got to get smaller to compensate. So as the object gets further from the center of mass, it has to slow down. Similarly, if r gets small, it gets close to the center of mass. This becomes a small number, but l, the product m times v times r, has got to be constant. So since m isn't changing, the velocity v has got to get bigger to compensate in order to keep l a constant. Now, we've all seen this effect if you've watched figure skaters. Figure skater starts out; she's got her hands outstretched and goes into one of those really amazingly graceful spins. And then she draws her arms in and goes faster. What she's exploiting is conservation of angular momentum. The mass in her arms and her hands are at large radius. She sets herself into the spin at a certain speed, and then she draws the masses of her arms in. R gets smaller, v has got to increase. To go faster. Now, I'm simulating that by dancing here because this is a high friction surface. Um, and I don't have one of those nice little sort of you know, stand up uh, bearing trays whew, to, with weights to be able to demonstrate this. But try this with an office chair and a couple of little hand weights, and it works. Well, planets do exactly the same thing. The motion of a planet around the sun conserves angular momentum to a first approximation. Near perihelion, the planet is closer to the Sun, therefore it's smaller r. Its mass hasn't changed, so its speed has to increase to compensate for its closer distance. Similarly at aphelion, the planet is as far as it ever gets from the star. It gets a larger r, and so the velocity has to be smaller. Now remember that the the way Kepler did it was with a triangle sweeping out. He said the area of the triangle is the same. Height of a tri- The area of a triangle is one-half the base times the height. In an orbit, the height is the radius, and the base is the velocity in the orbit times the time interval you've looked at. That's why it was equal areas and equal times. If you have a shorter, bay- a shorter height, you're closer to the sun, perihelion, you've got to cross a larger base at the same time, therefore you've got to be moving faster to, r- to traverse a big distance in a short time. When you're far away, the height of the triangle gets taller. You have to draw the base in. So the product of base times height. Base is velocity times time. Height is radius. V times R. All you've got to throw in is the mass, and you've closed the loop and you've got angular momentum conservation. But it's distance relative to center of mass, not the distance from the sun to the planet. That's the generalization of Newton. So now I've taken my two stars with a mass ratio of 3.6 to 1 but I'm putting them on an elliptical orbit of an eccentricity of 0.4 and we'll set them into motion here. You notice when the big planet and the small planet are furthest apart at the same time they're closest at the other time. They have to preserve that ratio of 3.6 to 1 in their relative distances from the green. So when the Blue star, the big star, is at paracenter because they're about common center. The orange little star is also at its paracenter. And similarly, when they're furthest away, they have to be in balance, so they're both at apocenter at the same time. And notice they speed up and slow down, moving fastest at paracenter and slowest at apocenter. And they move round and around. But now, I'm going to freeze this here. The angle that Kepler would have said, the line from the sun to the planet, and Newton said, "Uh uh-uh, it's the line from the center of mass to the body that sweeps out equal areas in equal times, and it's simply a consequence of the conservation of angular momentum. Angular momentum is an unfamiliar concept, it's not something we deal with every day unless you happen to be a figure skater, but it's a very powerful concept. Conservation of angular momentum runs all over the universe. It's very hard not to conserve angular momentum. It explains such things as why the Earth more or less spins at the same speed, but when an external torque gets applied, it begins to change, and we're gonna see tomorrow how those torques are actually applied through gravity. Finally, the third law. Kepler's third law of planetary motion stated that P squared was equal to A cubed. Newton said, for any two massive bodies, M1 and M2, the square of the period is equal to, here comes the nastiest equation you're gonna see in this class, 4 pi squared times A cubed over G times the product of the masses. Maybe you'll have to use this on a homework at some point, but you won't have to use it on a test. P is the period of the orbit around the common center of mass. A is the semi-major axis of that orbit. M1 and M2 are the masses of the first and second body. By convention, M1 is the big one, M2 is the small one. Or they could be the same mass. And then there's a 4 pi squared in there. And you look at this and you say, that can't possibly be right But it turns out if you put in period and years, semi-major axis A and AUs, and you express masses in units of the mass of the sun, you get exactly Kepler's third law. It just works that way. The G goes away and the 4 pi squared go away. In fact, in the units. Now, the proportionality is now not simply a constant for the solar system, but depends upon the sum of the masses of the two bodies. So, for example, for the case of why does Kepler's law work? Why does Kepler's law hold for the Earth and for Jupiter? Earth and Jupiter are 318 times difference of mass. And the answer is because the mass of the sun is so much bigger than everything else in the solar system. To Kepler's ability to measure, it might uh, might as well be M1 plus M2 might as well be about equal to M1. An analogy? I'm going to give you a million dollars, and then we're going to start arguing about pennies. The million dollars wins. Well, the sun is a million times more massive than the earth in round numbers. So we're going to argue about earth, Mars, Venus, and Jupiter? (laughs) When I've got the sun? It's like, yeah, we're not going to argue about pennies here. So I can approximate to saying, yeah, it's a million dollars in round numbers. And when you do that, p squared is equal to 4 pi squared over g times the mass of the sun times a cubed. When the second mass is much, much smaller than the first mass, I can simply replace the sum of the masses by the mass of the sun. If I put in kilometers and years and and grams and stuff like that, I'll get exactly p squared equals a cubed. Now, why is this important? Because we can use this... Kepler's third law only explains the solar system. Newton's version of it includes the masses, which means now I've got a universal weight scale. I've got a way to measure the masses of objects. So, for example, I can measure the mass of the Earth by watching how objects fall on the Earth and measuring their acceleration in Newton's gravity. We did that yesterday. How did I know the mass of the Sun is about 2 times 10 to the 30 kilograms? I can't go to the Sun and drop weights. Ah, but the Earth is falling around the Sun. Period of the Earth's orbit is one year, or about 3.156 times 10 to the 7 seconds. The size of the Earth's orbit is 1 AU, or about 1.496 times 10 to the 11 meters. I punch in the equation... The mass of the Sun is about 4 pi squared times A of the Earth cubed divided by G times P squared. Just a little algebra on that previous problem. I punch in the numbers for 4 pi G in the right units, A and P, and I get 1.99 times 10 to the 30 kilograms. I'm 150 million kilometers from the Sun. I have never sent a spacecraft anywhere near the Sun, and I can tell you its mass to at least three decimal places. Actually, we can tell you the mass to about four decimal places only by measuring the Earth falling around the Sun. We're using gravity to measure masses. I can measure the masses of any two objects anywhere in the universe if I can see their orbits, and then I'm done. It's an amazingly powerful system. It works anywhere. I can watch the Galilean satellites, and I can find that Jupiter is about 300 times the mass of the Earth. I can measure the mass of the Earth-Moon system by watching the fall of the Moon around the Earth and find out the Earth is about 81 times more massive than the Moon. And I do this all without ever having to leave home. I just simply make the observations and apply Kepler's third law as generalized by Isaac Newton. It can measure the masses of binary stars. It can measure the masses of galaxies. It can measure the masses of clusters of galaxies halfway across the visible universe and beyond. It's an extremely powerful tool. Gravity has amazing predictive power, and this is why people got so excited about it. Comets were a phenomenon that had been known for as long as man had been looking at the sky, but no one could ever predict them. When they would appear, they would appear as mysteriously and they would vanish as quickly. That's why they were often thought to be omens, usually evil omens. Edmund Halley, who was the man who pestered Newton into publishing his work in the Principia, noticed that the orbits of the Great Comet of 1682 was very similar to a comet that appeared in the year 1607 and the orbit of a comet that appeared in the year 1537. No one had ever made that connection before. So he applied Newton's brand new laws of gravity and said, you know, that comet's going to come back in the year 1758. Halley was going to be dead by then. He had no way of being able to see this, but he made a gutsy prediction. He said, if Newton's right, that comet's going to appear in the sky in 1758. It was recovered in the Christmas night sky of the year 1758. It was an electrifying event because it was the first time that anyone had ever predicted the return of a comet and had done so with precision. It made people really think that this Newton guy was on to something important. It was a dramatic confirmation of Newton's laws of gravitation and motion. There was skepticism even up through the early portions of the 18th century, but this almost wiped out that skepticism. After that, no intelligent person held on to Aristotelian ideas. But the real big demonstration came in the year 1781. William Herschel, an astronomer transplanted from Germany, discovered this by accident the seventh planet Uranus while peering at the sky. No one had ever seen a new planet before. Here was a planet showing up in a telescope. By 1840, the motions of the planet Uranus were not where they should have been. It was moving into the influence of some other gravitating body. And the deviations were bigger than an arc minute, bigger than were allowed by Newtonian theory. One possibility was that Newton was wrong. The other was that there was an additional eighth unknown planet out in the distance. Adams in the UK and Le Verrier in France began to do the detailed calculations. Not observations, calculations. Le Verrier was able to convince a man by the name of Galla that he could figure out where the planet should be. Galla believed him, pointed his telescope at that position, and on the 23rd of September 1845 found Neptune only 52 arc minutes from its predicted position. A new planet discovered by calculation from first principles using Newtonian laws. Not an accident, it was where it was supposed to be. It was an amazing triumph for Newtonian gravity and it's why we believe and use Newtonian gravity in our work. And tomorrow we're gonna pick up some other of the consequences of Newtonian gravity for understanding the solar system.